0: This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. Our guest is Tim Wendell. How you doing, Tim? Great, Bob. How you doing? Okay. Tim Wendell is the author of Cancer Crossings, A Brother, His Doctors, and the Quest for a Cure to Childhood Leukemia. It's published by Cornell University Press. And in this book, he outlines a chapter in the history of cancer research into the cure for a specific cancer, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, whose cure rate has gone from 10% to 90% in the last uh, half century. And this is what they call, I believe, a memoir. It's your family story. Briefly, what is your family story as far as uh, this kind of leukemia is concerned?
1: Well, Bob, my brother Eric was diagnosed with ALL in roughly the spring of 1966. And at that point in time, uh, as you just pointed out, uh, especially childhood leukemia was a death sentence. And in a sense, if you looked at the uh, handbook for pediatrics at that point in time, roughly the mid-60s, it was one page, and pretty much it said, Make the patient, him or her, as comfortable as possible because they won't be with us much longer. Um, my brother ended up uh, in with an amazing group of doctors and nurses at Roswell Park Hospital in Buffalo. And they he was supposed to live only about a year, and he lived eight years. And it's, uh, in a sense, uh, an amazing chapter in my family's history and one that I kind of forgot until my daughter Kind of pointed it out she was at georgetown medical at that point studying to be a doctor herself she's now emergency room doctor and she pointed out dad this is where they took it from in a sense a death sentence to a cure rate that it is today and at that point i decided well i've got to go try to find these doctors and uh and and the race was on so to wow.
0: speak how did how old were you uh when this was happening when you when your young brother was alive
1: Um, Both my wife and I are the oldest of six, and I was uh, 10 when Eric was diagnosed. He died when I was 17. I was a junior in high school. And so obviously a, a traumatic or landmark moment in my life, and one that I think, you know, we all have these moments and we kind of push them aside, and it's interesting when somebody in your life, say like your daughter who is studying to be a doctor, suddenly points out hey, Dad, this was pretty momentous, and you kind of go back and then find the doctors and the nurses that were pivotal in making, in a sense, curing this form of leukemia. We hear these days about the need for a cancer moonshot. We had one about a half century ago, and I think in some ways we can uh, follow up and follow some of the examples that these cancer docs did at that point in time.
0: Did they call it that then, a moonshot?
1: No. No, that's terminology that's uh, much more recent, say, you know, with former Vice President Joe Biden and such. But they knew that they were trying to do something that was improbable, that in a sense bordered upon maybe the impossible. Uh, one of the things that struck me in starting that, to talk with many of the doctors uh, from this era, say James Holland, who just died himself just a couple couple uh, weeks ago, Donald Pinkle, who started up St. Jude in Memphis, you see the ads for that on TV, Lucius Sinks, et cetera, was that how much they were ostracized and criticized by their peers, by the medical community. It was thought cancer, don't bother with that. You know, it's it, we can't cure it. And these guys were called a whole bunch of names, including killers, poison pushers, one that I, I kind of like a little bit more was uh, cancer cowboys, and they kind of seized upon that. They liked being, they liked, to, in a sense, terming themselves the cancer cowboys and trying to do the impossible.
0: Mm. And these um, remarkable researchers or, or doctors were at Roswell Park at the time?
1: Yeah, the vast majority were at Roswell Park. Roswell Park was the center of this uh in a sense, effort, mostly because James Holland, who had been at National Institutes of Health outside of Washington, uh, was appointed the point person. He was the main guy for the first kind of multi-institutional group that decided to take on leukemia. And in a sense, the papers, the headquarters, were in Buffalo, and uh, mostly because that's where Holland was. And even though today there's a great many hospitals doing great work in cancer research and such, Back then, you pretty much only had six to eight hospitals that were really involved, and uh, the main one was was Roswell Park in Buffalo, where my brother ended up being treated for you know seven eight years.
0: So, what was your brother's experience? I mean, uh, he he was sick, and, and then he got some better, and then would get sick again. Is that how did that work?
1: Yeah, it was. Um, It was always a struggle, and I think there was a lot of certainly guesswork involved. In fact, at one point, I remember uh, a scene that my mom later described to me where Eric is talking with some doctors, and, and he's actually working on a jigsaw puzzle. They used to have big jigsaw puzzles at Roswell Park on the kids' floor. And he was working on the puzzle, and he turns to the doctor, and he goes, I hope you're good with puzzles, too. Because in a sense the race was on how much how many of these variables and things could you figure out in time to um solve uh in a sense get the cure rate up and get the remission rate up for this and it was uh it was a struggle, but as many of the things we take for granted today using chemotherapy drugs uh in combination bob um the blood centrifuge machine, which literally spins the blood and separates out platelets and granulites, all these things you need for treatment, um, these were discovered by, in a sense, these cancer cowboys, often with very little time, because if they didn't get things somewhat figured out and get it right, obviously the patient wouldn't be with us much longer.
0: Yeah, now, Dr. James Holland, that you uh, referred to, who just died at the age, I think, of 92. Um, he... He was the first doctor to use chemo as we know it, you know, by combining different things into kind of a a phrase they often use, a cocktail.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he was the first one, or among the first to really embrace, in a sense, the chemotherapy cocktail.
0: And uh,
1: there's been, you know, there's a great many people out there that have done amazing work on this, and probably the father of chemotherapy drugs is a guy named uh, uh, Sidney Farber, who the Dana Farber Institute in Boston is named after. He did his uh, grad work at Buffalo, at UB. And, but Farber was very much more cautious. He was trying to figure out exactly what these new surge of, um, uh, in a sense, chemotherapy drugs coming on the market could do, things like methadrexate, dinamicin, et cetera. And he really wanted to understand everything. Um, Holland and, in a sense, the cancer cowboy said, by the time we understand everything, the patient probably isn't going to be with us anymore. And so, in a sense, they started to ramp things up and using, in a sense, the drugs in cocktail form um, and combinations of four, five, even six at a time and varying the dosages and such. And it was very much kind of seat of the pants, maybe... uh, medicine. They were criticized for it, but again, they took what was a shapeshifter, as anybody knows who's dealt with cancer, and and pretty much one in three Americans are going to know somebody who's dealing with some form of cancer in our lifetimes. This is a shapeshifter, cruel disease, and they figured this was the only way to really take it on, was to accelerate things.
0: Well, yes, in fact, we're going to ask you to say sort of what you just said, but you suppose that these doctors were spurred on i mean what they're doing is is dangerous you know it's dangerous to their <laughs> patients i uh, mixing these drugs together and giving them uh, to them but in, at least in, the, in this case of this particular uh, this childhood leukemia um i'd hate to say i mean it was almost like well why not you know th- th- this child is going to die soon so why don't we try something uh dramatic or, or drastic
1: yeah and that was pretty much in a sense the uh say the philosophy or the approach that my parents signed on with when Eric was uh, admitted to Roswell Park. It was, in a sense, he might not be with us even 12 months from now. Let's do everything we can. And yeah, they they weren't sure of every particular step and perhaps were making up some of it as they went along, the Cancer Cowboys. But I'm I'm struck by how when things get accelerated and how when, especially groups, of, say, doctors like this really kind of buy in and try to do everything they can. It's amazing what they come up with. One of my favorite stories about from this is one day they were sitting around um, Buffalo at that time, didn't have a lot of, say, restaurants that were open late. And so uh, Donald Pinkle was in town, uh, and he was over at the Hollands, and the Hollands had in a sense, whoever was in town um, among, in a sense, the cancer cowboys, was in, always invited over to their house for dinner, and they'd always have these kind of, you know, just kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of bull sessions. Everybody says, "Well, i will try this. What are you doing?" Then? And then just trying to compare notes. And James Holland's wife, Jimmy Holland, uh, who was from Texas, very much kind of a self-made person, woman making it in medicine all of a sudden speaks up and says, well, hang on, do we know how these patients feel? What's their emotional state? What are they thinking when you guys are doing all these different types of, uh, of medical approaches mm-hmm. and such? And and they said, no, we'll worry about that, in a sense, when we cure them. And Jimmy Holland, to her credit, in a sense, no, that's not good enough. And she started this whole field about, in a sense, the emotional response mm-hmm. to what goes on with patients? That is very, very huge today. It, it's a, it's a it's an amazing step forward. But mm. again, it came off these conversations sitting around a kitchen while Jimmy Holland's cooking up another dinner for a bunch of the cancer cancer doctors.
0: Mm. And while this is going on, of course, y- yes, your brother Eric and you and the rest of your family you're all you're all living. And this, your your book uh, chronicles what you you do. Why is it called Cancer Crossings?
1: It kind of came, Bob. We had a couple different telescopes, but in a sense, what we did as a family, there was a couple major things. It seemed like we're always attracted to bodies of water. Um, In the winter, we skated on an outdoor pond. I'm kind of the one who brought hockey into the family, and everybody played including my brother, Eric, even though he was uh, pretty sick at times. He played for three years. And But in the summer, we sailed, and we sailed across Lake Ontario. Uh, some of uh, Early on, it was eight of us on only a 24-foot boat going all the way over to the Canadian side. And I didn't realize it, Bob, until I was finishing Cancer Crossing, that this was my father's kind of private pushback against having a son diagnosed with leukemia and I even called him up and I said dad you taught us how to sail because of Eric and there was this pause on the other end of the line and he said of course I did and I did and I, and I, then I was able to put it together we started the sail Eric was diagnosed in early spring 66 we're on the water by that summer and my dad's not a super religious guy, but he's a very spiritual guy in his own way. And to him, the wind is magical. The wind is invisible. It changes direction. It changes force. You've got to know how to trim your sails. You've got to be cognizant of this whole thing playing out all the time. And even though he never came out and said it quite in that way, that's why we learned to sail. Because in a sense, it was how you adjust yourself to, in a sense, rapidly changing conditions. In a sense, wind to him was very much like life. And so therefore, this had the name of the book Cancer Crossings" because of the hundreds of trips we made on Lake Ontario. And then I think it also has a little bit of um, acknowledgement to the doctors too. They had to cross, in a sense, from what was accepted medical practice at that time to something else. They had, in a sense say well that's not good enough let's see what else we can do as professionals as doctors in this field and in a sense brought the rest of us you know medical community us as just uh you know as a populace to a better place
0: you lived in buffalo at the time
1: i lived in lockport outside Ah, of buffalo and that's where that's my hometown i was born in philly but philadelphia but lockport's my hometown and uh in fact, I remember one time, actually, when I was writing Cancer Crossings, I met Joyce Carol Oates, who's obviously from Lockport, too. And we had this most animated discussion about Lockport and how, you know, how different in some ways it is from the rest of the world. And I and I realized between, say, Lockport, being on Lake Ontario, all these things that you think are normal, I think everybody thinks their childhood is normal in some right, ways. Right. And then, actually, one of the last scenes of the book is me taking my son, who actually looked a lot like my brother early on when he was uh, when he was younger, um, out on the pier where in Alcott, New York, where we sailed out of, and telling him about, yep, we'd come out of here and you'd harden up into the wind, and you know, if the wind, if we had a, if the wind was consistent and the wind was strong, you could be in Canada, you'd be in Toronto in seven eight years. Uh, seven, eight hours, and um, he's like, looking at me like this is the most ridiculous thing in the world, and yet I realized uh, of course he would. He had a different different childhood, but um, that was my childhood, and uh, sailing, hockey, just trying to move ahead as a family, and my hope is that in some ways just people that are impacted by this, and a great many of us will be, uh, with cancer, here's a hope, on here's a story on several levels of hope and resiliency, and I hope it carries through to some folks
0: today. Tim Wendell is with us. He's the author of Cancer Crossings, A Brother, His Doctors, and the Quest for a Cure to Childhood Leukemia. We'll continue with uh, Tim in just a moment. On the Historian's Podcast where we uh, welcome your contributions to our GoFundMe campaign to keep the podcast going. You can go to this website, gofundme.com forward slash historians2018. Easy to donate online, but if you'd rather not, you can make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore. Send it to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 123. And thank you very much. Tim Wendell with us, the author of Cancer Crossings, A Brother, His Doctors, and the Quest for a Cure uh, for Childhood Leukemia. And uh, this is kind of a combination of a look back at the history of cancer research and a a memoir of uh, Tim Wendell's family when his brother uh, Eric uh, was alive and was being treated for childhood leukemia. Uh, the, the family would uh, do athletic things across, uh, ac- go across Lake Ontario in a in a sailing boat. Um, did the sailing or did the boat trip cease after your um, your brother died?
1: We kept them going, Bob, for a while, and then they slowly. Tapered off. Um, actually, my—I'd left for college. Uh, I, I went to college at Syracuse, uh, SU. Um, I was gone by then. My sister Susan, who was a phenomenal sailor, was gone by then. But the remaining, um, you know, kids, uh, my siblings—they kept it going with my parents. In fact, they for the 1976 Olympics in Montreal, they all went. They sailed up there. They sailed all the way up the St. Lawrence Seaway and. I somehow got up there and, um, and had an amazing time. It's funny how certain things, I think, in any of our families, in a sense, kind of percolate down. They last through the years. None of us owns a big sailboat right now. I used to live on board a sailboat in San Francisco Bay you know, 10, 15 years ago when I lived out there, but I'm more of a landlubber now. And my brother Brian, my brother Chris, they both have like smaller kind of dingies like lasers and this type of things to sail. But I noticed um, if we ever are approaching water, say we're together, say at a family reunion, or I'm together with a couple of my brothers or sisters, and we're coming down to water again, and we'll do this without being prompted at all. We'll suddenly be looking up at the treetops. We'll be looking out on the water. In a sense, we'll be see, We'll be trying to size up which direction the which direction the wind is coming from, and how if you were going to sail on that body of water today, what mm. you would do.
0: And, and in a sense, that's a gift from my dad. Tim uh, Wendell is, as I understand, a writer in residence at Johns Hopkins University in uh, Baltimore. And let me uh, throw in some of my own uh, connections to. Uh, cancer, just to kind of get your reactions to it. I've already uh, mentioned uh, before we started recording about my, my son, um, Bob Jr., who's a researcher at Johns Hopkins. He works in uh, David Linden's lab in, in the field of neuroscience. But early on, uh, when he, in fact, he got inspired, if you will, to study science. He would finished his uh, degree at University of Buffalo in, I think, 92 or so, and then went to work at um, Roswell Park as a computer guy on a research project done by a man named Ken Manley. Uh, he was mapping mouse genetics uh, in connection with uh, with cancer, uh, and in fact worked there from, nine, my son did, 93 to uh, 96. But I've already asked uh, Tim Wendell, and uh, Ken Manley's not a name, he's Familiar with in connection with this particular story. In fact, it's now three, it's that itself is like two or three decades beyond uh, Dr. Holland, uh, Sinks, uh, and uh, Pinkel. But um, they did great work on childhood leukemia or came up with things that other doctors do or other doctors also do. Uh, But you've expressed an opinion in the book, let me try to get a question out here, that – and I don't know if it's based on talking to these guys or or your own thought – that maybe the way to get results in uh, in cancer research is to be like – the cowboys were to be really passionate about it as opposed, you uh, say, as opposed to just putting in more, you know, more money, more people, more.
1: Yeah. And it's funny, Bob, one of the last questions I asked of all the cancer cowboys when I was interviewing them. And so, you know, I would ask it several different times and different sessions we had was, could this be done today? In a sense, could you take... A form of cancer that's a real killer among certain part of your population base, in this case kids, that's 10% survival rate and could you make it 90, 95% today? And and this doesn't begrudge the great work and there's amazing stuff going on across the country, but they were all a little skeptical Um, and part of it was not so much the passion. I think there's passion of people fighting cancer today and and you know my my heart goes out to him. I, I wish them the utmost success but often we came back to this story about the blood centrifuge machine and and this is what i made i think made these guys a little bit different than maybe other groups of, of medical professionals one day they were sitting around again probably around a holland's kitchen table and they said wouldn't it be great if we had a machine that could spin the blood and separate out Mm -hmm. platelets and granulates and all these things we need instead of trying to pump whole blood into kids. Um, Probably if you or I had a conversation like that, we'd go, yeah, that's great. And then the next day we'd probably be back doing our job the same old way. Um, Several of them the next day started to try to build it. And the thing is that this is almost like ludicrous because these guys didn't have any background in machinery or anything like that. One doctor plastic tubing running all around his office for several months. But through some serendipity and some people coming in that could really help them on the machinery front, they built it. They built the blood centrifuge machine that's still used in hospitals today. Here's the twist. Here's the thing that I think makes it different than what we see today. They patented it. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Then they made it free. They made it available to any hospital that wanted it. I think we're so involved with money today and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, what a certain drug can make, what a certain machinery can be sold for, that I think it slows us down a little bit in terms of what can be done um, in terms of
0: progress against some of these diseases. And let me, uh, um, again, not again, but now outline the... um, impact of cancer on my particular family years uh, later than what you're describing, your brother uh, diagnosed in 1966, My I, I, I had one sibling, uh, my sister Arlene uh, Cudmore. Uh, she contracted ovarian cancer, had her uh, first operation in uh, 1996, and she died in very early 1999 at, at age 63. Now, ovarian cancer is, uh, you know, hides for a long time. You know, in retrospect, she was sick a lot er- earlier than 1996. Just You know, we never figure that out. And my sister was very, I don't know what the word is, you know, she was a very plat- tranquil individual. She did not really pursue uh, a, you know, go to Roswell Park or go down to the city and, and so forth. Then there's my wife's case, Um her name was Mary, and she had her first uh, colon cancer operation. She had colon cancer. She had her first operation in 1997. Again, she probably had colon cancer, and it was building, and it was a dif- it was a problem in in diagnosis. Uh, she lived a bit longer than Arlene. She lived until um, March of 2001 and died at age uh, 56. But she kind of had the opposite approach to the disease. She tried everything. You know, we, uh, the, the place we latched on to people have suggested Roswell park, but we went to Memorial Sloan Kettering and she was uh, getting, um, experimental chemos, uh, as close a week before she died. And so in a way that was coming, she didn't linger as my sister did for a long time in hospice care. Or some, or some, uh, weeks in that, um, my you know my wife did suffer but it was you know only for a week but but certainly um they hadn't made it didn't seem to me great strides in either uh treating ovarian cancer or uh, colon cancer of course maybe that's just a, a a bitter um bitter remark and and maybe they are um what do you think yeah i think
1: uh, first of all i'm sorry to hear about your loss but um It kind of speaks to just, you know, the campaign, the battle against cancer overall. I mean, once you get, I've been a little amazed, and I probably shouldn't have been, but, uh, you know, since Cancer Crossings came out just a couple weeks ago and talking with people, we all know somebody who's been impacted by this in some way, shape, or form. And I think a lot of it depends upon maybe individual, obviously what they're comfortable with, et cetera. Um, obviously the quality of the doctors. My my brother was lucky uh, in a lot of ways, and 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 we didn't realize that until maybe many years after his passing. Is technically he was only supposed to be with us, you know, maybe twelve to eighteen months. Instead, we had him for close to eight years, and had a great time. And I think one of the things my family was able to do was very much live in the moment. We jammed a lot into every day, you know, because there was nobody came out and said it, but it was understood. Time's limited. Let's Mm -hmm. see what we can do. Let's go. And in an odd way, we shared that. It wasn't until I was interviewing and talking with the cancer cowboys, that that's the way they approach things too. They, They had this uncanny Say they would have a clinical trial, maybe that was that I would look at in, in my, you know, inexperienced way and just go, ooh, that doesn't look very good. You know, that didn't seem like it did much, much good at all. And they'd be able to kind of pull out the couple things that would say, okay, we can build on this moving forward. They could find like the sliver of hope or optimism in a devastating clinical trial. Conversely, and maybe in one where. A lot of the patients went into remission, you know, be a cause for celebration. Yeah, they they would celebrate, but it would be short, short-lived in a way. They'd already be looking, okay, how can we make this better? Um, I'm a big believer in, um, you know, trying as much as I, as I can to live in the present, trying to be mindful, etc. Um, almost kind of this, you know, what some people would say, a Zen or Buddhism kind of approach to life. Ironically, the best Zen artists I've run into in the last couple of years have been these doctors.
0: Okay. Tim Wendell's the author of Cancer Crossings, A Brother, His Doctors, and the Quest for a Cure to Childhood Leukemia, published by Cornell University Press. You can find out uh, more information about Tim Wendell online. He's written many other uh, books on various topics. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.